Well, good morning. Um, it's so good to be here this morning. I just want to echo uh, the welcome that Dave has already given you, whether you're joining us from your living room or your bedroom or you're catching up later in the week um, on our podcast. We're so glad and so thankful that you've decided to join with us um, this morning. It was a year ago to the day that I preached my first ever uh, sermon here in Central. And if you told me then that this is what it was going to look like, in a year's time, I probably would have struggled to believe what you would say. Um, but here we are. Here we are in um, the most bizarre circumstances, in all of the frustration and the weariness, in the grief and the uncertainty, and still choosing to acknowledge that uh, the, the goodness and the faithfulness of Jesus in what has been such a cruel year for so many and choosing to acknowledge that Jesus himself knew frustration and weariness and grief, just like we have and we are, and he has drawn close to us and will continue to draw close to us in this time. And as Dave's already mentioned, we're uh, launching a new theme this morning, um, and we're just going to jump right into the passage. So if you have your Bible in you, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1. Verses 46 to 55. Luke 1, 46 to 55. This is what it says. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He extends, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Amen. So as David said, um, we have been in a series over the last uh, 11 weeks, I think it is in total, um, looking at uh, the parables of Jesus, um, and this morning we're just going to hit pause on that and come back to that in the new year. And we're going to be spending some time in this new uh, series that is entitled New, and the hope is that this series will help you see that everything that Jesus came to do and establish here on earth was in fact new. Everything about his life would be unfamiliar to the culture in which he was born because he was both nothing like what the people expected, and yet he was everything that they needed. And we see this in the groups of people who were awaiting his arrival. Um, the Romans were expecting a Messiah who would be a militant leader. The Jews were simply, or simply didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was when he arrived. And right from the word go in Jesus' life, he would be subverting the culture flipping everything that they knew and expected, everything they thought a Messiah would be, he flipped it all on its head. And we see that come to life really in the fruition of the Christmas 
story. So as we approach this Christmas season, it is our hope uh, that through this series and in the familiar elements and in the familiar narrative that we hear year on year, um, that you will see the newness that Jesus came to establish through his life. And if you haven't realized it already, yes, it is true. We are on the run-up to Christmas. It's hard to believe that it's actually December. It feels like everything between March and now has just evaporated. Um, But it's true, we are on the run-up to Christmas. And one of the things I love most about Christmas is Christmas films. So there's nothing quite like, you know, a mid-December cold night where you light the fire and you stick on a good Christmas film. But the thing that I've come to realize about Christmas films um, is you have to be really strategic about the films that you watch and in what order that you watch them. Um, in order that you, you know, you peak on Christmas. So uh, you can't be pulling out big hitters like, you know, It's a Wonderful Life or, or Home Alone on like the 2nd of December. You, know, you have to keep those for like later on in the month so that you're like peaking well. And just last year, um, The Independent wrote an article uh, entitled The 20 Greatest Festive Films of All Time. And I'll go through the 20 of them, but the top 10 were, uh, number 10 was Meet Me in St. Louis. Number nine was Home Alone 2. I'm outraged that that only got ninth. Number eight was Carol. This was a film released in 2015. It sounds awful. I don't know how it got there. Uh, number seven was Love Actually. Number six was Gremlins. Number five was The Muppets Christmas Carol. Number four was The Snowman. Number three was Elf. Number two was Home Alone. And number one was It's a Wonderful Life. And by the way, I know you're all wanting to know Die Hard was there, but it was number 12, so make of that what you will. Um, But in my humble and amateur opinion, Home Alone is the best Christmas film. Um, It has it all, right? So firstly, it has Macaulay Culkin, so like you're already doing well. It has awful parents, it has pranks, it has robbers, it has humor, and it has a John Williams soundtrack. In my opinion, it has it all. But there was just one thing that I noticed um, about uh, Home Alone recently that I had never noticed before. So you know that scene at the start of the film when Kevin comes downstairs and they're all eating pizza and he comes out and he's all, did anybody order me a plain cheese? And he, that was a really, really bad uh, impression. I'm really sorry about that. But you know when he like proceeds then to like charge at his brother Buzz um, who then falls onto the table and all of the drinks spill? But what I never noticed was that in all of the carnage that has broken out, Kevin's dad tries to wipe up the mess with a pile of napkins. And as he throws the napkins into the bin, he also throws in an American Airlines ticket with Kevin's name on it. So that's why when his family get to the airport, they never notice an extra ticket. Not that that justifies their woeful parenting. Um, But I don't know if this is common knowledge, If if it is. Um, I'm just really late to the party. If it's not, you're probably all sacking off church to go and check. But why do I say this? Because in all of my 24 years of loving Home Alone and watching it every year, I never noticed a detail that added so much to the story. And I believe that we have the tendency to do the same thing when it comes to Christmas and the Christmas story. There are elements and details that we so easily overlook, that we miss in the familiarity of the story as we hear it year after year. And this morning we are looking at the the theme of new courage 
uh, and more specifically at Mary's Magnificat. This incredible song response uh, to receiving the news that she would carry, bear, and raise the Savior of the world. And in all my experience of hearing the Christmas story, Mary often goes unnoticed. We're so quick to rush to Jesus, and of course we are right to focus on him, but as we do that, we sometimes and quite often miss Mary. And that's the very thing that I want to dive into this morning, because Mary is one of the the heroines of faith, and for whatever reason has too often gone unnoticed. And we need to remember her and to rediscover her again because she's absolutely remarkable. And she's remarkable for so many reasons. But one of the main reasons that she is remarkable is because of the audacious courage that she has. And there's just two things that I want to unpack this morning to help us realize the courage that she had and hopefully spur us on to be people who live with that same courage as we approach Christmas And those two things are courage in obedience and courage in revolution. And the first is this, courage in obedience. And obedience can, you know, be a really difficult thing sometimes uh, because quite often obedience brings with it some form of opposition. In choosing to be obedient to, to something, you're essentially giving that thing your submission and allowing it to be a higher authority in your life. And giving that thing your yes, you're subsequently giving something else your no. And it's not uncommon that that obedience can often lead to some form of opposition. And that opposition can be both internal and external. So we can face internal opposition. I don't know about you, but when someone tells me uh, to do something, quite often my natural tendency is to either not do that thing or do the entire opposite of that thing and when I've been asked it's just flawed human nature and we see that all the way through scripture right at the beginning God asked Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil and we all know how that went Jonah was asked to go to Nineveh but he went to Tarshish instead Lot's wife was told don't look back at the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah And then she did, and she turned to a pillar of salt. We're all born flawed, with flawed tendencies. So internal opposition in the face of obedience is an intrinsic part of what it means to be a flawed human being. And when we have the choice to be obedient, the enemy will do all that he can to ensure that we do the other thing. So he'll tell you that you're above whatever it is you've been asked Or he'll give you every reason why you don't need to do that thing and you don't need to be obedient to that thing or that person. Internal opposition is often present in the face of obedience. And then there's external opposition in the face of our obedience. And this is, you know, when we feel the pressure of people or the world around us um, who will taunt and threat and even seek to hurt us in pursuit of our obedience. This is broadly what we know to be called persecution. On April 1st, 1942, Desmond Doss joined the U.S. Army. However, Doss wasn't like any other soldier. 
As a Seventh-day Adventist, he believed strongly that he could carry a weapon or threaten another human life. He assumed that his right as a conscientious objector would not require him to carry a weapon, and ultimately he wanted to join the U.S. medics. But when he enrolled, he was assigned to an infantry rifle company. However, he still refused to touch a weapon. And because of his objection, he became widely disliked by his company. In their eyes, he was a liability. They tried everything to get him discharged, so they assigned him extra tough duties. They, uh, they took him to court for refusing uh, orders, and they even tried to declare him mentally unwell. He was even threatened by a fellow soldier who said this, as soon as we get into combat, I'll make sure you don't come back alive. His obedience brought with it so much external opposition. But somehow, no matter what they tried, he managed to stay enlisted. And if you've seen the film, you'll know how it ends. If you haven't, I'm about to ruin it for you. Uh, He went on to serve as a field medic in Okinawa when the Japanese attacked his unit at the top of a cliff, cutting down nearly every single man. So he quickly assembled a stretcher that could be lowered by a series of pulleys um, and and to, to the ground beneath him. And then by himself under fire, he went and retrieved each of the 75 men in his unit, one at a time. You see, he believed that his duty was to obey God and serve his country, but it had to be in that order. So in the face of opposition, he was rooted enough in his faith to be courageous and remain obedient. So we see that obedience often brings with it both internal and external forms of opposition. And if that is the case, then we're going to need something that will help us in the face of opposition. And I believe that one of them things is courage. So we have Mary. Mary was tasked by, by God with something that had incredible cost and consequence, and yet she displays the most incredible amount of obedience and courage to do what God had assigned her. How do we know? Well, firstly, she worshipped. Look at the beginning of the passage that we just read. It says this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. You want to know the hallmark of someone who is completely sold out and completely invested in the kingdom of God? Look at the response when he asks them to do something that will cost them everything. And this did cost everything. And this was going to take a huge amount of courage. But secondly, she was radically obedient. Look at verses 47 and 48 again when it says, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And this word servant that she uses is really interesting. And we see Mary use it twice. Once in verse 48 from the passage that we read and then previously in verse 38 when the angel Gabriel appears to her and tells her that she would conceive and give birth to Jesus. This was her response in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. 
And this word servant, used in verse 38 and 48, does in a general sense describe what she is, but the Greek word used to describe her is to, to describe her intent is much more than that. You see, the word is better translated to the word bond slave. And this word bond slave describes a particular kind of servitude that was common in her day. This term denotes a person uh, who had voluntarily sold him or herself into slavery, usually to, uh, to pay a debt or to avoid destitution. And she would have used this word intentionally to express her complete submission to the will of God. In other words, I willingly commit myself to the unconditional service of the Lord. So we see that she chose worship and we see that she chose to be radically obedient. But with that came incredible opposition. Because the thing we need to remember is that she was living in a world before Christ. So it's not like the world we live in now where uh, you know, we can look at hindsight through scripture um, and look at her attitude and, and her obedience to do the thing that God asked her to do and praise her for it. No, the reality was that she was a 15-year-old girl immersing herself in a story that would bring with it shame from the culture around her. She was a girl, she was young, she was unmarried, she was a pregnant virgin, and she was carrying the Messiah. She was to be a laughingstock to the culture around her. She would become the talk of the town for all the wrong reasons. As she went about her daily life, she would be subject to ridicule and would be the punchline of most jokes. One commentator says that whispers, snickering, jokes and scorn would become her closest and most enduring companion. But still, she willingly committed herself to the unconditional service of the Lord. Her courage in being obedient is absolutely Astonishing. I mean, can we, from a purely biological level, can we acknowledge and appreciate what it was she went through? She was a 15-year-old girl with no medical aid, no gas and air, no midwife, and probably an underdeveloped body that wasn't ready to endure the physical and mental impact of having a baby. She was absolutely remarkable and she knew that this would cost her everything and still she goes through with it. Have you ever noticed that it's way easier to say you'll do something than it is to actually act? During the week, Hannah and I uh, decided that we would um, start going for walks before work every morning. So we decided this on Wednesday night and on Thursday we did. We got up at half six, the alarm went off. We got up, went for a walk um, and on the way back from that walk we said, let's do this again tomorrow. And when the alarm went off at half six on uh, Friday morning, it was cold, it was dark and there was snow on the ground and the conversation went a little bit like, will we go? No, we'll stay in bed. And we didn't go. We said we would, but it was so much harder to actually do it when it came to it. Like it's so much easier to say that we'll eat healthy or we'll exercise more or we'll pray more or we'll give more to charity. But when it comes to it, it's way harder. For Mary, this was going to require the obedience to say yes and the courage to follow it through. 
And if we're being honest, for us today, one of the biggest threats to obedience is passivity, isn't it? So there's been so much talk of this new normal that we're living in and have been for the last nine months as we've accepted that life is going to look a lot different for a while. And if we're honest, this new normal has come with it lowered expectations. It's restricted us from the things that we care about and has given us an out from the things that are lower down in our priority list. And one of those things can often be our walk with Jesus. We just let it tick along. We maybe tune in online every now and again. We'll join community if we can be bothered. And all of a sudden we come so passive. And passivity is one of the greatest threats to obedience. As well, one of the greatest threats to courage is conformity. So, you know, we feel the extra weight from the world around us. We feel the external pressure from the world and the people around us. And the easiest thing is just to become idle, to question, to doubt our morals. Sure, it won't hurt to fill in the blank. It won't be that bad if I X. And all of a sudden, you're a million miles away from who you want to be and from where you want to be. And that's exactly what the enemy wants. But following Jesus and conformity to the world around us will always live in discord. So how do we do it? How do we stop ourselves from becoming passive? How do we stop ourselves from conforming to the wrong things? Well, it's identity. Identity. Because knowing who you are and knowing whose you are will breed a courage that will create a pathway for obedience to follow in the face of opposition. Mary knew who she was. I am the Lord's bond slave. Her identity was firmly rooted. That's why she could go through with what she'd been asked. That's why she had the courage to be obedient to the thing that would cost her everything. So Mary shows us courage in obedience, but secondly, she shows us courage in revolution. Earlier this year, Hannah and I got married and we were engaged for about 10 months. And every single day of that 10 months, we must have spoken about the wedding at least once a day. And then coronavirus hit and it went from speaking about it once a day to what felt like every waking second of every single day. It was absolutely relentless. Will it happen? Will it not? Who can come? Will we be in lockdown? So many questions. And by God's good provision, the day arrived and we were able to get married and it was the most amazing day. But by the time we actually got to it, it was as if the wedding just happened to us, you know. It happened so fast, we hardly had a moment to take it in. It was like one of those things that if you blink, you would have missed it. But the reality is that the wedding was not the most important part of all the conversation and all of the question in the 10 months leading up to it. The most important part would be all the days that were to follow it. Because it's about marriage. Yes, you were planning for a wedding, but we were preparing for a marriage. And too often, I feel like we approach Christmas the same way. Like it's this crescendo moment. Like it's the thing we're trying to get to. 
So we spend so much time preparing for it, buying presents, usually going to parties and gatherings and car service and all that stuff. And then Christmas Day comes and it goes and we enter this weird no man's land that is between Christmas and New Year's and we treat Christmas like it's all over. But the reality is Christmas Day is not, uh, it's not the end or even the pinnacle point of the story, but it's the start of the story. The start of a story where we see God begin to break in and to bring his redemptive purpose for the world. And on that very first Christmas, Mary knew that. Mary knew that. She knew that it was only the start. You see, Mary had a dream. And it was a dream of a future hope. A dream that was the ancient dream of Israel. A dream that one day everything that the prophets had foretold would come to pass that a certain Messiah would come and would overturn the cruel powers of a prejudiced government that Mary knew all too well. She herself lived under the reign of Herod the Great, the one who would attempt to kill Jesus at the expense of thousands of little boys. This was a brutal regime. But Mary, like so many people in her time, would have immersed herself in the scriptures, in the Torah, in the Psalms, in the prophecies, which spoke of a Messiah who would subvert the cultural norms and who would bring about an alternative way. In the words of N.T. Wright, these scriptures that Mary knew so well spoke of mercy, hope, fulfillment, reversal, revolution, victory over evil, and of God coming to rescue at last. Mary knew that the child that she would bear would not be like any other She knew that he would fulfill everything that that Israel was hoping for. And she knew that it was just the start. She had a future hope that would outlast herself, that would be carried into every generation by a loving God through Jesus' life and the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what gave Mary the courage to say the things that she did in her Magnificat. Here's what she said again, verses 51 to 53. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. These are bold statements for Mary to make. These are bold statements for anyone to make, never mind a young teenage girl. But you see, Mary was declaring an alternative, a revolution. And revolutions aren't foreign to us, are they? We have uh, witnessed and maybe even participated in some of the revolutions that have been around in our not too distant past. So earlier this year, uh, we watched on with horror as uh, we heard of the brutal murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd, which sparked a surge of Black Lives Matter protests that swept across the world in an attempt to tackle systemic racism. Just before that, we saw the increase of climate change protests as a young Swedish girl began to protest outside the Swedish parliament with a sign simply reading, School Strikes for Climate. This girl, Greta Thunberg, now aged 17, has pioneered a global revolution to reduce our carbon footprint. And before that, we saw 
The Me Too movement spread across the globe as thousands of women spoke out against the sexual harassment and abuse they had suffered from powerful and prominent men. I could go on. Revolutions are not foreign to us. But the revolution that Mary speaks about here was not like any of the revolutions that we've seen in our day. Because this revolution uh, was not um, one that she or anyone in in her day could fulfill but a revolution that only Jesus would fulfill because he would embody it. His whole life would be a revolution to the world around him and subsequently to us today. And it was unlike any other revolution because it was holistic. It was a a holistic revolution, a revolution that would be moral, political, social, and economic. We see that in what Mary sings So it's a moral revolution, look at verse 51. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. It's a political revolution, verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. It's a social revolution, verse 52 again. He has lifted up the humble. And finally, it's an economic revolution, verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And so much of what Mary sang in her song is actually echoed then by the teachings of Jesus. Look at the parallels between what Mary sings and what Jesus taught. Mary sings, he has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. Jesus teaches, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Mary sings, he has brought down rulers from their thrones. Jesus teaches, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Mary sings, he has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Jesus teaches, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. This is an entirely different revolution because it was holistic. And Mary knew that. That's why she had the courage to boldly proclaim it. And I guess the question that I want to ask as we come into land this morning, the question that I've been asking myself as I've been trying to prepare for this today, is what kind of people would we be if we had the courage to live as people of that revolution? If we had the obedience to let Jesus be the highest authority in our lives, to devote ourselves to his way, and to have the courage to live as people of his revolution. A revolution that is neither left-wing or right-wing, that is not fueled by anger and is not demonstrated in protest, but a revolution that exalts the humble, that gives voice to the voiceless, that gives worth to the outcast, that befriends sinners, that is worked out in grace and peace and hope and love. A revolution that was a totally other way. That's what the newness of Christmas invites us into. That's what Mary proclaimed in her Magnificat, to live as people of new courage, the courage to be obedient to the call of God in our lives and the courage to live as people of his revolution. So what about you? Are you in? 
Is that the kind of story that you want to be a part of? Because that's what God made available to us through Christmas. Through sending Jesus and the example that he would set. Christmas is only the start. And it's the start of a season that would propel us into new courage. Let us live as the people of God who live with the courage to be radically obedient and to live in an alternative way for the sake of the people of Belfast, for the sake of our, for our, for our families and our friends, for this nation. Let us live that we would have courage to be the people of God who live in an alternative way and to, who live with radical obedience.